The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. I'm very excited today to introduce you to my guest. It is Dr. Jesse de la Cruz. We're going to be looking at Mexican-American gangs from the inside out. And it's, you know, it's so unusual to find a man who's experienced a life led by Dr. De la, de la Cruz and, one, lived to tell about it, and, two, turned his life into a positive role model for others. Good morning, Dr. Dr. De la Cruz. Did I lose you? I can hear you. Okay, there you go. Uh, now I can hear you. Good morning. Okay, good morning. Good morning, everybody. How are you doing? Very nice to have you. So, so just to give uh, folks that are listening a flavor of, of your background, doctor, would you start with, you grew up in an area that you describe as the barrio. Yes, it's, it's a small town, a rural town, uh, very small actually back then. It's still sort of small in uh, the Central Valley. It's located by Visalia, California. It's a little town called Woodlake, California. I think the population now is like seven, 8,000 people. But back then, when I was there growing up, uh, it was about 25, 2,600 people. That's wow. it. You know, so. You know, I don't I, even know where Woodlake is. Where is that located? <laughs> it's in Tulare <laughs> County. It's in Tulare County, which is uh, uh, it's it's about forty miles south of Fresno or south uh, okay. east of Fresno, and uh, maybe fourteen miles exactly from Visalia, California. Okay, all right. Mm-hmm. So it's close to Lindsay. It's close to Lindsay. It's about uh-huh. um, it's about fourteen miles, maybe sixteen miles from Lindsay as well. Okay, all right. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so was this area mainly Mexican American, or or was that just a small no. percentage? No, no, no. Uh, the so so Woodlake, California. When I was growing up, I grew up in the, in a neighborhood called La Rana. La Rana is is uh, the Spanish word for the frog, and they called it that because it was on the hollow, right? Um, and when it would rain, because there was no sewage system, it would flood. And when mm-hmm. it would flood, then all the frogs would come out, and you could hear the frogs, <laughs> you know, croaking huh. you know, during the night, right? And uh, so I, the town is 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 half Latino, you know, Mexicans, and the other half, or the the good side, you know, the good side of the town is primarily white. So as kids, 
we were not allowed really to go on that side of town unless we were going to school because, of course, the school was located on the good side of town. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's kind of a typical scenario of barriers, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. You know, we didn't have any. Yeah. There was no black. There was no blacks in my neighborhood, or there was no Asians in the entire town. Uh, mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I think the first, the first African American that I came in contact with was in juvenile hall. You know what I mean? Okay. When I was about the twelve years old, okay. I had never, I had never, I had seen them, but I never really paid too much attention. I, you know, as we were driving, maybe in Fresno, or we were going from. Fresno to Bakersfield to go pick potatoes because we would we, we would migrate from you know different towns during the sure. summer seasons you know and I would see them you know uh, African Americans at that time but I never was exposed to them until I went to juvenile the criminal justice system that was the first time that I was really you know like okay here they are and then you know they were different and you know we looked at them different and of course the criminal justice system is set up. Uh, is racist all day long, you know. You know, it, it, there's dip, mm. you know Chicanos on one, you know, whites over here, Mexicans over here, Latin, you know, mm-hmm. like that, African Americans, you mm-hmm. know, everybody's separated, segregated, right? You know, and mm-hmm. it creates conflict when that happens, doesn't it? Oh, it's a tremendous amount of conflict. In other words, yeah. you're, you're on the yard, let's say you're on the prison yard, for example, and uh, you know the Northern Hispanics have their section. Southern Hispanics have their section, you know, uh, white boys have their section, African Americans have their section, uh, Asians have their section, and now Border Brothers, who are guys from Mexico, right, they yeah. have their section. And if you, you know, in, intrude in their section, you, you're subject to be jumped right now. You know what I mean? So you have to, like, be real careful where you walk and who you walk with and all. You know, it's just a constant uh uh it's, it's pretty dangerous at any rate um dr de la cruz uh has written a book his memoir called detoured my journey from darkness to light um he published that in 2011 and if anybody's interested in a uh, in the legal system in somebody who's a mexican-american gang expert uh, this is the guy. Uh, he's lectured students, teachers, community leaders about his experiences. He's had many um, with drugs, crime, his extensive experience in the judicial and the prison systems. Um, and I might sen- say, since he's not here <laughs> to correct me, uh, he's gotten along, um, since he's got out of prison, he's been out of prison 20 years, he has got, he's received his master's, sorry, excuse me, his uh, bachelor's in sociology, a master's in social work, and a doctorate in education, just in a huge, immense accomplishment. I was just going to say the name of your dissertation. It's the longest name I've ever seen. Um, well, that's the way, no, but that's, you know, if you, if you look at dissertations, all of them have, they're about a paragraph long, <laughs> the, 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 uh, the, uh, what do you call it, the, the, the titles. I was yeah. like, man, this is a long title, right? <laughs> <laughs> but that's the way they wanted it. So I said, okay, I'll give you what you want. Anyway, yeah. as you were, you were asking me about my role models, right? Yeah. And, you know, you know, I didn't have role models like, uh, you know, doctors and, and lawyers. And as a matter of fact, nobody in the neighborhood that I remember back then, nobody except one guy, and that was like when I was about maybe 17 years old, 
that that went to college. Everybody else, nobody went to college. Nobody went. I, I don't remember anybody even talking about college ever since I, when I was a kid or a young man. You know what I mean? And so I remember Big Indio, you know, everybody talked about him like he was God, you know what I mean? And I was like, who is, you know? And so I knew Big Indio's uh, nephew, his name was Jackie. And nobody liked Jackie, right? And, uh, but I liked him, you know what I mean? And I was, I had already, at the age of, you know, about nine or ten, I had already established a reputation as being sort of violent, right? Because of growing up uh, with, in, with polio, you know, and people making fun of me, I used to, you know, I, I had to, like, learn how to, fight really well because I couldn't run so I had to mm-hmm. learn how to fight right and when people would make fun of me and finally one day I socked this kid in the mouth and so you know from there on I learned that hey man if you sock people in the mouth you get respect so that's what I did so everybody knew that Jackie was my friend so when I found out that Jackie was Big Indio's nephew I told him and, and Big Indio got out I said man take this go to your house man I, I want to see your uncle right and then he was going to use it Big Indio you know, the fact that I wanted to meet him, he was going to use it as, or try to use it as leverage, right? And he goes, oh, well, you know, I don't know. I go, look, the next time, if you don't take me, the next time they they, they jump on you, I'm going to let them beat you up, man. And then he mm-hmm. goes, okay, let's go. So we went, right? And it was funny because Big Indio, he reminded me of an Aztec warrior I had seen in a, in a mm-hmm. picture book in, in, the, in the library, right? He was big, mm-hmm. big, white shoulders, you know, huge mustache, hair slicked back. You know, he was wearing one of those white beaters, those slingshots, white ones. Mm-hmm. And he had really a lot of elaborate tattoos, and he was really built. And he, you know, and, and I was like, wow, man. I was in awe of the guy, right? And all of a sudden, he turned, and he, um, he says, hey, what's your name? Little Vato, he called me, right? And I looked, and I go, who, me? And he goes, yeah, you. And I said, my name is Chuy, you know. Uh, that's what my mama used to call me, right, for Chewy, Jesse. Okay. Yeah. And I said, but but everybody calls me that I want. And I and I puffed up my chest, right, like puffed it up. And he, he looked at me, and he sort of smiled at my gesture. And he goes, come <laughs> here. You know, he goes, come here. And I went over there, and he goes, listen, I'm going to tell you something. Now, I didn't know what he was talking about, right, but I already knew that we were treated differently. I knew that in school. You know, I mean, you know, I, I didn't know what racism was, but I knew we were treated differently. That's what right. I did know. And so he said, listen, I want you to know something, man. He goes, never, ever. And he said it with so much passion and so much conviction that I was like, whoa. He like, you know, I was like, wow, you know. He said, don't ever trust a white man. Uh-huh. And I said, whoa, okay. He goes, and never trust a black man because he had just got out of prison, right? And then he goes, always stick with your rasa, your people, right? And I said, Okay. The following day, I went to school and I started spitting on white people. Following really? Day. Yep. How, now, how old were you then? I was about 10, 9, maybe 11, somewhere in there. 10, 11. I was already mean, you know what I mean? I was already, because of the polio thing, I was already, you know, I was nice to people that were nice to me or that I, people that were my mm-hmm. friends. But anybody that was not, you know, I was mean, you know what I mean? And I, and I let them know, you know what I mean? I told them, I, you know. So he was my role model, and after that, you know, he took it upon himself to start pretty much schooling me, him and another guy named Pato. And Pato was, like, one of the leaders of the neighborhood, too. And they taught me, uh, you know, a lot of things, like, you know, don't break into 
the houses in the neighborhood because they, we don't have nothing. You know what I mean? If you're going to do it, go out to the ranches and hit them. They got everything. Take it from mm-hmm. them. Sort of like the Robin Hood thing, right? Mm-hmm. Although I didn't know it was a Robin Hood thing at the time. Right. And he said, never... He goes, you got to always remember, you know me. I mean, you got to stand by your, your homeboy. You can't leave him. You can't run. And I would always tell him, I can't run, man. Even if I wanted to, I can't run. I'm not going to run. How That's old were you when you, had, when you had polio? How old were you? Three, it was three years old. I was three, and I was in the okay. hospital for, for, for three years, I, from the age of three to the age of six in Corpus, Corpus Christi, Texas. So, you know, I started doing time at a very young age, you know what I mean? So, you know, isolated from the world and, you know, I was alone and, and, you know, my parents would go visit me. My mama would go visit me. All this stuff is in the book, right? The, the book that I wrote mm-hmm. and uh, in the memoir. And, uh, you know, I mean, my mama was, my mom was young. She was 13 years old when she got pregnant by me. And then she was 14 in 1951. That's huge. And then she was kicked mm-hmm. out of the house and then she had to figure out, you know what I mean? And I don't know how she did it, but... I know that I learned a lot of the, my, my values and a lot of the stuff that the, the strength and the courage and all these things that I have and I've demonstrated come from my mom because my mom was the same way. Uh, anyway, so, yeah, and so I started going to June. I remember the, when I made the decision to become a gangster. I was 12. You actually made the decision. Oh, yeah, I made a decision. I, I actually made the decision. Okay. I, I, my, my brother-in-law who married my sister eventually. He wasn't married to her then. He, he picked me up. He had 19, a 1939 Chevy. And he picked me up. And he was a drunk, but he worked. He was a worker. And and he, he picked me up, and he was drunk. And he, he, he wanted me to tell him about my sister. And I would say, okay, you know, whatever. I don't know. I just told him whatever he wanted to hear. You know, and then he so he took me to the store, and he gave me a pulled out some dollar bills and gave them to me and he'd go get you something to some something whatever you want and I went in and got me a chocolate milk and a, and one of those uh, a, a cupcake with whipped cream inside you know mm-hmm. real good right it was a treat <laughs> mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. he dropped me off <clears throat> and I sat down on the on the porch in the front steps of my house and I looked around and I remember thinking man I don't want to work in the fields for the rest of my life man or some warehouse or or in a in a factory you know what I mean and then I and then I said I'm not going no more. I'm not working no more. I'm in the fields like some donkey for a few measly dollars, and we have nothing, you know. And uh, and you know my parents they did that. You know what I mean? For every single day, you know, except maybe Sundays. But they six days a week they got up in the morning, they went to work all day, came home, and I never seen them. So right. I suffered from emotional neglect. That's what I did suffer from. But, my, but I had good parents. Don't get me wrong. But I know that I needed love. And I didn't, you know, my parents were not used to saying, we love you. I never heard. In fact, the first time I, t- I hugged my mother, that I remember hugging her, I was in the penitentiary at the at dual vocational institution. She came to visit really? me, and I remember hugging her, and she flinched. And I remember thinking, wow. And then I remember then, right as quick as I thought, you know, like bad, felt bad, I remember thinking, well, she doesn't know. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I yeah. sat down, and I told her, Ma. I don't want you to come back to visit me no more. And she goes, why not? I said, look, I made the decision. This is my decision. This is who I am. I got it. This is the way I live. You know, don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to be all right. And she didn't, you know, they didn't come back no more. But, you know, I would write to her periodically. But anyway, when I was sitting there making that decision, I remember thinking, no, man. And so my father beat me for a week, right, trying to, you know, convince me to go back to work. And I took the beatings. I didn't cry. I didn't snivel. I just took the beatings. I took the ass whippings. And then finally he decided, I guess, 
this guy's stubborn. He's not going to give up. I'm going to let him go. And I walked to the corner. I remember that day when I thought it was a victory, right, you know, over my father and walked to the neighborhood. And I remember seeing the homeboys right there. And Pato walked up to me and said, what's up, man? And I go, hey, what's going on? And he goes, hey, we hear, you know, you're running around here, boom, 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 this and that. You know, you want to be one of us? And I said, yeah. So he handed me a bottle of wine. First time I had drank alcohol, right? I didn't want the wine, but I couldn't say no, right? And I remember of not. I, yeah. I took three deep, deep breaths and I guzzled it, right? Because I never learned how to drink. You know, I guzzled it and I almost threw it up, but I held it. <laughs> and then it hit me, right? And then I said, give me another drink. <laughs> and then I went home that night and, and, and I remember the room spinning and I could hear the music filtering in through the, the, the my bedroom window from the fellas, you know, they were you know, playing oldies but goodies. And I remember mm-hmm. thinking, man, one of these days I'm going to be one of them. And that's where the journey began. And then, so, during so do you think, um, Dr. De La, Cruz, De La Cruz, do you think most kids make a decision or do you think they just fall into it? Well, no, they make a decision based on their the choices they have at the time. Yeah. That's what yeah. it is. So it's called right. relative deprivation, right? So in other words, they look at it and they say, well, look, here I am and here's this white kid over here. He's my age. He has a car. I don't even have a bike. He has right. brand new this. I don't have that. He has a nice home. I don't have that. I used to see, you know, the kids with the families, white families, go to the the, the downtown in Woodlake in the main street. They only have one restaurant. Yeah. And like every Friday and maybe Saturday nights, I would see the families have dinner, entire families, right, having dinner. Oh, and wow. they would come out, right, and, 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 and the the kids would get hugged by the parents and I would say, man, I wonder how that feels. You know what I mean? Right? Amazing. Well, we could not do that, right? So today, you know, society wants to think, society wants to blame everything on the kids, on the people. You know what I mean? And sure, whatever they, the crimes they commit, it's their, mm-hmm. they, they committed the crimes. But people are not born monsters. People are not born that. See, when I was born, my, my toolbox was empty. It was completely empty. I was That's a, a great description. That's a right? great description. And right. I and as I grew up, I began to acquire tools to be able to navigate my way yeah. through the world that I was confronted with on a daily basis. So the day oh. that I found out, hey, if I hit this dude in the mouth, he'll stop. Mm-hmm. That was a great tool in my it world. Is a tool. Right. You understand? So now, but if society would provide, for example, everybody wants to work with children. I don't work with children. I work with adults. Mm -hmm. You know, and the reason I work with adults, Frenzy, is because I'm a hardcore individual, man. Because I had a hard life. I'm a kind person, but I'm a hardcore. In other words, I ain't got time to baby you, man. You know what I mean? If, If you're hardcore... I'll work with you. Come on. Mm-hmm. Let's mm-hmm. go. Because I know mm-hmm. that you're hardcore and I know the kind of treatment you need, the kind of mentoring you need. But society, what they want to do is they want to blame everything on the parents. Yeah. Well, my parents were good. My parents were good. But they had yeah. to work all day. Right. So, so, you know, it's not the parents. It's a combination of many other factors, too. Sometimes it is the parents, but, I mean, you know, most of the time it's not. Yeah, for sure. 
Go ahead. You know, we need to we need to take a quick break. Uh, we'll be okay. right back. Much more to come. This is so interesting. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Former gang member Dr. Jesse De La Cruz is talking about how he overcame his life of crime and heroin addiction to where he is today. And uh, Doctor, you were just saying that you work with adults instead of the kids. That right. means what, really? Well, that means this. Look, you know, let's say for example, I'm going to give you. I'm going to tell you a story. This is a true story. When I was a, when I was a young man, uh, we were in the neighborhood and we were planning a robbery. Me and my my homeboy, right? Mm-hmm. And so he was talking, and back then I didn't say a whole lot. I didn't talk because why? Because uh, I was always breaking the law, and anything you say can and will be used against you. So, I, right. I, you know, I didn't talk very much. And so he was telling me about this. And his son, who was 13 years old around there, showed up, and he goes, Hey, come here. And he calls him, right? And the son, I remember him, like his body language said, like, Oh, man, right? So he right. came over, and the father said to him, Where you been, man? And the kid was going to start answer and he says i know where you've been you were over there at that damn community center right and the kid before he answered he said let me tell you something don't be hanging out at that place man and don't forget man where you come from get out of here and the guy left and i was like wow and then that kid that kid the last time i was in Folsom in 1996 was in Folsom too and me and him went we took a walk right his name was patrick and he goes hey he goes hey jess he goes, man, you guys lied to me. And I go, I didn't lie to you. And he goes, yeah, you did. He goes, you guys painted us this picture about this and that and woo, 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 right? And I said, 
I'm listening to him and I go, look, oh boy, I didn't tell you nothing. Mm-hmm. He goes, yeah, but we were looking up to you. And I said, well, mm-hmm. that's your choice. I didn't have anything to do with that. So the point that I'm making is this. He had a father who was all messed up. When that kid went home, he went home to his father, mm-hmm. his father's house. Mm-hmm. So that kid was influenced by his father. Now, if I had worked with his father and his father had changed his way of living, right, and started looking at the world from a different perspective, then maybe the kid going, he would have encouraged his son to go to the community center as opposed to telling him not to go. So all these you know, kids. Yeah, that, that's true. But what, you know, there's, there's a lot of families, really good families, hardworking families, really care mm-hmm. about their kids, that the mm-hmm. kids still get involved in the gangs because they're, they're looking for something. Well, they're, they're, well, you know, this is what it is. It's you know, they're intrigued by the lifestyle, right? Because they see only, you know, the the outside, you know, the nice clothes, you know, the fast money, and so forth and so on. So what happens is, you're talking about poverty. You know, that right. that's these, yeah. these kids are like, well, you know what, you know, and they want to get out of poverty. So how do we get families out of poverty? Once again, we don't get a, we don't get the kids out of poverty. We help the adults get out of poverty. We see we spend billions of dollars, like nine billion dollars a year, on incarcerating people in the Department of Corrections, mm-hmm. right? Uh, billions of dollars, you know. But and it's huge. And look at all the people we employ: cops, PI, you, me. You know, crime does pay. It doesn't pay them, but it pays a it pays a lot of other <laughs> right, people. Right, it pays everybody else for sure. Right. So, so yeah. what happens is is that they're commodities. We really don't want to, really, really make the change. I'm talking about the people that are way up on top. They want to let everybody believe, like these blue, these uh, blue ribbon committees. I was in one one time, mm-hmm. this Mayor's Crime Prevention Blue Ribbon Committee. They're joke. It's such a joke. I, I couldn't even believe it. I, I, I went there and I listened to these people and, you know, everybody was there, right? The chief police, the mayor, the judges and the fire department chief and the probation chief and the parole and blah, blah, blah. The list went on and on and on. And nobody knew. I was like, I, I said to myself, my goodness, these people are really green, right? They really mm-hmm. don't know. They really don't. And the people that do know don't want to tell them. Right. Because then it affects their pocketbook. It's all about money, man. It's commodities. We are commodities. I was, yeah, I tell the guys all the time, we're commodities, man. The, 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 the market goes up when we go to prison. Mm-hmm. We come out. You and know. We, have, we have whole communities built around the prison. Oh, my God. You have yeah. communities after communities after communities. Yeah. We have 33, 34 prisons. Well, if you count the hospital, we've got right. 34 prisons in the Department of Correct in California. When I went to prison the first time in, in, in uh, 1973, you know how many there were? 13. How many? 13. Wow. wow. 13 prisons. There was 27,000 individuals in the penitentiary. And that doesn't the count the federal prisons. <laughs> no, or the no, juvenile no. halls or the camps. No, or the jails and all. You know, my goodness <laughs> jails, gracious, this right. goes on and on. Yeah. So how, how old were you when you, you, first, you said you first went to juvenile hall? I was 12 years old. You were 12. And then how old were you when you first went to prison? When I got there, I think I was 21. But when I got arrested, I was like 18. Okay. 
And you, I know you, you served a total of 27 years, but that wasn't at one stretch. That was no, various no. times. Yeah, I, I served them in, in different in increments. But yeah. what I tell people, it's the same thing because, look, it, I was a heroin addict on top of that. And I understand now why I shot heroin. You know what I mean? I didn't understand it back then because really what it was was I was a good guy, man, but I did terrible stuff. I did mm-hmm. things that hurt my soul, right? It, they hurt me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so what would I do? I, I, when I shot heroin, it's in my book, right? I remember thinking, wow, it took all the pain. It took all the, everything, everything away and made everything right, right? Then what happens when I go to prison, what I did was I filled my heart and my soul with hate and rage so that I wouldn't feel nothing. You see? And I didn't know this until I came out the last time and started going through all this, you know, uh, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, so I would go to AA and then I would do all this meditation and I would read all these things. And I, and when I wrote my book, I would cry when I was writing my book. I cried. I would have to push away because I, the images that it were created in my mind. I There's a lot of things that I didn't say in the book because, you know, for many reasons, but I would it would remind me of things that I had done and things that had been done to me, mm-hmm. right? Because people hurt me too. Don't get me. Don't think that I was invincible, right? For I sure. got stabbed once. I mean, I'm not talking about physically. They hurt me in 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 a profound way where they cut me inside. So I had to make my heart and my soul hard like penitentiary steel, so that nothing could penetrate it. You know what I mean? And so when my daughter was born, she touched a part a part of my heart that. That, that had never been touched. And I said, man, I can't, I can't go to prison no more. Hmm. You know, I got to, how am I going to do this, right? And so, you know, that was the process. All this is in the book, like I told you, and I'm mentioning the book because I think the book is important for people who want to know because it, it doesn't Absolutely. give you solutions, but it gives you insight as to the causes and conditions and the mindset, Right. It doesn't matter that it happened in 1958 or whatever. This, that's what a lot of district attorneys, oh, well, you haven't been in the gang since 1976, and so that means that you don't know. What are you talking about, man? We, I'm the reason we have what we have today, right? We, the foundation of all this garbage that's going on right now was established by us, mm-hmm. me and people like me. You know what I mean? We are the ones. I was there the first time the North-South incident happened in, night, in the summer of 1973 at Dual Vocational Institution. It was the first time it happened. I was there. I seen it happen. I seen it evolve into what it is today. Right? So gangs then are the same as gangs now. The only There's another, a few factors that are different. One of them is this. Population has increased, so there's more. That's mm-hmm. one. Technology makes it a lot easier. That's two. Uh, the things that have changed back then, we wore khakis and Frisco jeans. Today they wear... I don't know what they wear, but they wear weird, weird clothing. And they they wear their pants sagging down to the crack of their butt. We <laughs> yeah. used to put them up to the top of their chest. Yeah. We wore Stacey Adams. They were, uh, they were Nikes or Jordans. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So, mm-hmm. you know, all this stuff was created by us. So when they say to me, you don't know, this is what I do. This is what, you know, I live, eat, drink this stuff every single day, you know. So anyway... Well, uh, and a lot, a lot of t- times, I think we ought to address too. A lot of times, there is a gang charge 
that there's an allegation uh, of a gang when it's really not a criminal <laughs> enterprise. So let's talk well, about that look, a little bit. Let me tell you, this is the way, this is the way it works. So you have this, you know, you're a PI, so you have a little bit more insight than most people, right? Okay. Hopefully. But most people, <laughs> Hopefully. right? I mean, you know, most people have this image of a gang member mm-hmm. based on <clears throat> what they've read from the media that has been fed by law enforcement, okay? So you're in a jury, and, you, and this guy's accused of, of murdering somebody, right? right? And he's accused of murdering that guy at the direction of, for the benefit of, and an association of the gang. Mm-hmm. So this trial is, and then, oh, on top of that, he's got tattoos, Right? And, of course, gang members have tattoos, right, according to what they say, right? Of course. So here he is. He's Latino, more than likely, or African-American or Asian, but primarily Latino. So he's sitting there, and first of all, the juries are made up primarily of white folks, okay? Mm -hmm. Primarily, you know, more than anything. Even though we Latinos in California are about 50% of the population, correct? Right, correct. Okay, but... They're not 50% in the court, in the juries. They're like maybe 2%. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If, the, if, there that, might be, if that. If that. There might be one in a jury, right? So yeah. they're not, a jury is not uh, a, a members of my peers. Uh, they're not peers. They're not members of me, of my you know, community. They're members of their community. And I'm the, I'm the bad guy. And as soon as I walk, you walk in and you see me and the, the district attorney starts saying, gang, 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 he's guilty already in your mind, in the jury's mind. And right. that's one of the reasons why they do it, to influence them. Then they get this gang cop that gets up there and he starts saying all this rhetoric, which is all it is. Now, how would he know? And he says, oh, yeah, gang members talk to me all the time. Is that right? Well, aren't gang members and police officers enemies? Well, mm-hmm. no, you know, they, oh, yeah, you, so, you know, you pull up and they stop there and you pull out your, your coffee mug and, and you break, you, know, you bring out the donuts and they start telling you all about this <laughs> stuff. So that's the way they make it sound. And, and juries believe that because they don't know any better. Right. They don't know no better. Because, look, because they're, what they're doing is they're saying, well, if the cops stopped me, I would talk to them. I would have, yeah, but you're not a gang member. You see what I mean? Exactly. So, of course, I would talk to them, too. You of would course. too, but of not course. gang members. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Or right? if they do talk to them, they're shining them on and they're feeding them full of all kinds of stuff. Well, of <laughs> they think course. they want to hear. I, listen, <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm gonna tell you, man. I, look, I got arrested once, right? And 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 they 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 wanted to make a deal with me, right? And they, and and this is how far they go. I, I was a heroin addict and I was kicking. They wanted me to tell them this dude on a murder, right? And I was sick. I was going through withdrawals, and they had this heroin right there on the desk. Now, the general public really? wouldn't believe that. Yeah, they won't yeah. believe it. But, just, you, know, you, know, you know very well they do a lot of stuff. You're a PI. Okay. You know they do. Yeah. So they, gave, they said, look, if you tell us we'll give, let you get, we'll give you a fix, you can go ahead and fix, right? So I said, well, look, let me fix first, and then I'll tell you. And they go, okay. So I fix, and then I tell them, I lied to you, man. And they beat me up. <laughs> they beat me up, took me back to the cell, and then, you know, that's what happened, right? So... They do a lot of underhanded stuff, right? But mm-hmm. juries don't know that. Because why? Because they're people just like me and you. They're like me and you. They're people. You know, cops are people. And that's yeah. why some of them abuse their authority because they don't know, they can't handle it. Anyway, back to the DA. The DA has this 
they do that, and then they overwhelm the the the, the, the district attorney. I mean, the defendant, defense attorney, by giving him all this, all, uh, all these uh, what do you call it, uh, discovery that has no meaning to the case. But of course, you have to go through it, and then on top of that, they're able to bring all this to to, to show a pattern, and they'll say, well, isn't it true that so and so got arrested for you know blah 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 and this and that from you know gang enhancement? Yes. Mm-hmm. And he was a member of the whatever gang? Yes. And the defendant is a gang member of that gang? Yes. Okay. And how about this guy over here? Yes. And the same thing. Boom. And so, but the defendant doesn't even know those guys. He's never seen them. He don't know them. Has nothing to do with them. And that's how they... And so, but at the end of the whole thing, right. if, if you don't get a good gang expert up there to refute that testimony and explain to the jury and give them a, a different narrative... They're going to convict him. Right. You know what I mean? And 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 so that's what they've been doing. You know what I mean? They they give people huge amounts of time. I don't know how they I don't know how they sleep at night, man. Well, one and you know once they charge the uh, gang enhancement, and usually it it's coupled with criminal with conspiracy in yep. some form or another, then that adds years and years. It could be life without. It is well. I, I'll tell you this. I'm doing a case right now, a, a, a capital murder case, death penalty case in Tulare County. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to tell you honestly that it is not a gang case. Now, watch this. Now, tell me, you give me a, you, you know, I want the readers to think about this one. This individual killed this guy, no doubt about it, you know. I'm not gonna. Re- I'm not gonna even try to say he didn't. Mm-hmm. So he kills the guy, and according to the testimony uh, in the preliminary and the police report, and the, you know the the, the uh, what do you call it, the co-defendants that 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 turned state evidence, mm-hmm. he robs the guy. Right. Okay. So that's a special circumstance, right? Right. Okay. Then they get the body and they take him out and they burn the body. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Then supposedly he's in jail and he orders somebody else to go kill this other person. They kill that guy. They burn the body. They charge him. They don't have no evidence. And they're saying that these crimes are gang-related, right? Right. Now, it's already, it's a double homicide, right? It's already a robbery. So they have all the circumstance, special circumstances they need, but they hit him with a gang enhancement too. Mm-hmm. Why? Right. Hang on, Dr. De La, Cruz, De La Cruz, hang on to that thought. We need to take a quick break or they're going to cut us off. We'll be right back. Okay. Okay. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. 
It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Today we're talking about Mexican-American gangs with someone who knows from the inside out, Dr. Jesse De La Cruz. We're just talking about the charging practices uh, with with gangs and gang enhancements. So you were just saying how, you know, not only do they add the conspiracy and the gang enhancement um, or, or the char- the charges, the murder charges, whatever, they also add the gang enhancement, which yeah. that's what gives them the life in prison without parole, doesn't it? Correct. See, but be- before I, before I uh, talk any further, I want to just clarify one thing. I'm yeah. not pro-gang. I'm not pro-crime. But I am pro-justice. And, you know, the DA has a, a hard job. So, you know, and the law office, police officers, they have a difficult job as well. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and it is what it is. So I am not saying that, by and large, they're, you know, just mean. You know what I mean? There are some of them that are, you know, but they they really honestly believe that what they're doing, I think, is is right. Oh, I agree with and, you totally. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't want people to think that I'm trying to bash, you know, uh, you know, the, the police department and, you know, um, what do you call it? Um, you know, uh, the district the attorney's office. Right, right. Yeah, because because they have difficult jobs, man, you know, the bottom line. And they honestly believe what they're what they're doing is is the right thing to do. But what I the reason I get angry is because I've offered to train them. I've offered to work and in cases where, you know, they have gang cases and where I could tell them, listen, this is a gang case and this is why, right? And this is not a gang case and this is why. But they won't do it. They won't do it because they know that if they do, everything they've been doing will will come to the to the surface and it will make them look bad. And they don't want that. Well, that's true. And... Um and I, and I do, and you're right. They they are true believers. There's yep. no question about it. Um, you know, if um, if they see a gang situation or they interpret it as a gang situation, they're going to go for that because they really believe that that's what's causing the problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> and and what we're really looking at is a a social environment that causes yeah. problems. I I totally well, look, agree with you. Look at 
this is how this is how this is how because people don't know this. I think they should listen to this. I'm going to read it to you uh, because this is what the law. This is the way they define in 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 uh, in the legislation when they when they made the law uh, 186.22 in the penal code. Mm-hmm. This is what they the way they define a gang. It's a, it's in uh, it says as used in this chapter, criminal street gang means any organ. Any ongoing organization, association, or group of three or more persons, whether formal or informal, having as one of its primary activities the commission of one or more of the criminal acts enumerated in paragraphs 1 to 25 inclusive or 31 to 33 inclusive of subdivision E, have having a common name or common identifying sign or symbol whose members individually or collectively engage in or have engaged in a pattern of criminal gang activity. My goodness gracious, that's anybody, mm-hmm. any criminal. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So yeah. they, they, they say that the number 14 or the number 13 is a gang symbol, and that's completely incorrect. Now, I bet okay. you you believe that. It's incorrect. Yeah, so t- let's 14, talk about that. I want to hear about this. Yeah, the 13 and the 14 are regional. In other words, the Nuestra Familia... Or the Mexican Mafia, mm-hmm. their symbol is not 14. Their symbol is not 13. The symbol for the Mexican Mafia is the black hand. The symbol for the Me- for the Nuestra Familia is the hat with the dagger going through it or the NF. That's their symbol, right? Okay. It has nothing to do with region. It, that's their symbol. When, when, when I did my dissertation and I interviewed 56 self-disclosed gang members in the city of Stockton, every one of them except one out of 56 had the name of their gang tattooed on them. In other words, when you go up to them and you say, hey, man, where are you from? I'm from Central. That's what they'll tell you, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, or I'm mm-hmm. from, you know, the Mission District or I'm from whatever gang they're from, right? Right. And then you say... No, man, but are you Norteño? I'm a Norteño, right? So that what they're telling you is, I'm from this gang, but I align myself with a Northern California car because there's a conflict between North and South. Right. Okay? And so there's a distinction. So there are many guys that have 14. They, have the, they also say the Huelga bird is, is, a, is a gang tattoo. It is not a gang tattoo. It has nothing okay. to do with gangs. Interesting. The, very interesting. It's, a, it's, you know, what happened? Do gang members have it? Some do. Does it represent their gang? Absolutely not, right? The four dots, the four dots or the three dots. If you talk to people that have the four dots or the three dots, every single one of them will tell you this. I put it on when I was 12, 13, 14. I didn't even know what the heck was going on back then. Right, right. right? Interesting. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So there... It's region. It's not. It has nothing to do now. If if you see a guy that has, for example, the Mission District, La Mission, right? That's where he's from. Or Twenty Fourth Street. Boom. Mm-hmm. Right. He'll and have that, that ha- tattoo. Right. And you huh? see that all the time. And what what the cops call that, and the what prosecutors call that, is sets. They say they're, they're sets, sets. They're, of they're larger organizations. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they call that because you know why. Because this benefits them to, they created about 1995, and uh, a district attorney in LA created this umbrella theory. What we're going to do is we're going to we're going to connect all these street gangs to the Mexican mafia or to the Nuestra Familia, which is a lie. Mm-hmm. Now they say they got a Norteño 
criminal street gang. There is no such thing as a Norteño criminal street gang. There is a Norteño crim- criminal prison gang, which is that structure or the Nuestra Raza, you know, under, they are under the umbrella of the NF. They are in prison, right? But these guys have 14 bonds, and one of the, on the 13th bond, it tells you, it tells them that they're not obligated once they get to the streets. Now, if, unless they want to, and once they get out, it's up to them if they want to. If they come out and they decide, okay, we're going to continue, what they usually do is they'll come out. Let's say, for example, uh, a guy from Stockton, right? He comes out, and he's from the east side, and he that's a street gang. And so he comes back to the hood. Everybody looks up to him because he's been to the pen, and they know he's one of these guys, and blah, 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 right? Okay. Mm-hmm. So the fellas and the youngsters look up to him. So what he'll do He'll pick and choose this guy, that guy, or maybe that guy, and he'll embrace them and say, come on. He doesn't embrace the whole gang. He just gets one or two or three guys from the gang and maybe other guy from other gangs too, right? And he's, then he, be, he develops what they call a regiment. But that's not mm-hmm. a street gang. That's a prison gang, right? These guys okay. are, are working under a different uh, mindset. Completely. It's not like, you know, so it's not the, the the prosecutor wants everybody to believe that these individuals, that the whole gang is in on it. No, that's not, right. that's not true. Yeah. That's not true. And so there is, you know, and then they, that the gang has shot callers. There's no shot callers in, in street gangs. You know, there's guys that have more influence because they're, they're tougher, they're, they're, you know, they're meaner or, or whatever, or they'll, re, they'll react quicker, but they can't tell anybody what to do. They can't order people around. There's no such thing. They don't have a constitution. They don't have a, a, a guy, you know, uh, bylaws and, you know, rules and right. conduct. They, they, don't, they don't do that. Street yeah. gang members, by and large, party, get drunk, mess with girls, play video games, and once in a while, kill people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 that's usually, in my experience anyway, the usually the the killing happens because of some it, disrespect. Was respect? You know, if disrespect. It, it's it, it's always about respect. Look, I'll yeah. give you another. I'll give you a hypothetical. I'm in the. I'm in, let me say I'm at the mall, and I'm carrying I'm carrying a gun because I'm a gang member. I'm not wearing any colors. You can't see any tattoos. But I've been shot at before, so I so I got a gun. I'm not out maraudering, looking, killing to kill people, but I am going to protect myself because, you know, we know in victimology. I taught victimology. In victimology, you know that that gang members are, you know, they're they they have a high uh, rate of being mem- uh, what do you call it. Um, uh, victims of of of, uh, of assault or murder, right? Because mm-hmm, of their lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then, so they, so I carry a gun and I go to the mall and I see this guy. Now I don't know the guy, but he's my age. He's he's not wearing any outward colors. Like I don't know if he's a gang member or not. What I do know is that he's looking at me in a hostile manner. Right. So he's not my friend. He. I don't know if he's a gang member or not. I don't know him. But you know. My ego gets in the way because I'm got a twist. We all have warped ways of thinking. Where, you know, when we're involved in the lifestyle, we mm-hmm. we we think that you know people shouldn't look at us the way you know that way. So I tell the guy, "What you looking at, man?" And the guy 
responds, because he's got an ego too, right? And he says, I'm looking at you, punk. <laughs> and then I say, man, F you, punk. And he goes, no, no, F you. And I said, no, no, no. And I pull the gun, F you, boom, 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 boom. And I yeah. kill you. Yeah. That's the way it happens, right? Now, yeah. as it turns out, the guy's a Sudeño. <laughs> but I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't have any colors. Nobody said anything about Sureño, Norteño, nothing. Mm-hmm. Right? And I'm a Norteño. I'm from Northern California. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a street gang member from Northern California. And he's a street gang member that represents Southern California. Yeah. Right? So then it becomes a gang case. Then it's a gang killing. Yeah. But is it a gang killing? Yeah. No. It has nothing to do with gangs. It has to do with a guy warped with my warped way of thinking, the way I look at the world as a result of my upbringing and, you know, the way, you know, I was taught and so forth and so on, right? Right. So. So, you know, we're almost at the end of the hour. I know it goes really fast, but uh, um, real quick, can, what would you say to prosecutors and police officers on how you would change things if, if you had your wish? (laughs) Wow. (laughs) <laughs> that is huge. That's a big one, huh? <laughs> that is like, I mean, you know, I would have to really, I mean. Really think about it, that one. It's, it's not, well, because it's not one. It's not one factor. One thing, right. It's a many, many factors, and and it requires many peop- many different people's involvement, right? It's not just one. It's not just, you know, them and us, and you know what I mean? It's, a, it's, it's in working together, and right. let me see how you think. And let me see, you know what I mean? And then I'll tell you how I think and how can we mesh and merge. You're talking about communication. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. communication is probably the key. Yeah. But, um, you know, anyway. Well, it, it is it, delightful you, talking to you, Dr. De La Cruz. Just delightful. Yeah. Um, Thank you. Let's, let's can uh, we give let the know, name Can we let them know they can, they can purchase the book? Yeah. Hello? And where, where can they purchase it? Amazon? Yeah, you can get a, you can get on Amazon or go on uh, PayPal or or my on my webpage. I have a webpage. It's jsdconsultations plural right with an s. Right. dot com. Okay. And J- if, you know, so, you know, it, it, yeah, jsdconsultations dot com. Okay. All right. But it's been a pleasure, um, and, and I, this is a huge. This is a huge topic. You know, this is not a topic that can be discussed in one hour. That's right. That's it's, right. It's difficult. But you've really, no. you've really hit some very important points, and I so much thank you for sharing your experience and your uh, critical and vital observations. Um, we're at the end of our hour, folks. Uh, this has been really exciting. I hope you read Dr. De La Cruz's book. It. Sounds like it's fascinating. I'm going to read it myself and tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real people like Dr. De La Cruz. It's P.I.'s Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. Okay. Thank you. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.